Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week we're discussing the use of science, technology and evidence in international trade. And with me to discuss that is Dr Michael Short, the Chief Scientific Advisor for the Department for International Trade. Dr Short, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, nice to be here. So what are the main areas of work within the Department for International Trade that need research and technology evidence and expertise? Well, as a department, we're clearly involved with export, inward investment, and some areas of collaboration. If we don't have the right science evidence, it's sometimes difficult to put priority on some sectors without that evidence. Sometimes when we're trying to export in new fields, it's helpful to know how strong an exporting country is so that we can understand the market we're exporting to. In other cases, it's also leveraging some of the great work done by UKRI or some of the research community and finding ways in which that can be exported into different markets, either through a collaboration phase or a standardization phase and into those overseas markets. It's particularly important with some of the new areas like levelling up that we identify UK strengths by region and making sure that we have the evidence to show where regions are particularly strong and maybe where they could be stronger with the export benefits. We also have to look at areas such as export controls for areas such as national security and making sure that we keep the strengths of UK to the UK unless it is cleared for appropriate export. And this month, the DIT has published an updated version of a document setting out uh, what, what are called areas of research interest, or ARIs, something that's now done by all government departments. What's the thinking behind publishing these areas of research interest, and how do you want researchers to engage with you on them? The initial thinking was in the uh, Sir Paul Nurse's review of the research and innovation landscape and in particular looking at how would different government departments engage with universities and the research community. In order to engage better, it's uh, far easier to declare what are your areas of research interest, and that's a method by which then universities or research institutions can engage. We've in uh, trade terms put in areas which are not just economic, but also impactful on the economy, where we would like more evidence, more discussion, more advice. So we're an open door to that advice, hence the second edition of DIT's areas of research interest. And there's a lot of new questions in this ARI document now about the effect of COVID on business and trade. What are the things that you're keen to get evidence on? We've deliberately added COVID questions because it affects every aspect of the economy, both in the UK and internationally. Uh, we felt that because so many sectors are affected, we should get a better landscape of evidence that we could use. So that includes understanding how COVID may have affected some countries more than others, because that may inhibit uh, some export opportunities. We also wanted to pick out areas of trends where maybe the digital health agenda uh, could be uplifted, as we've seen with some of the issues around COVID in the UK. Uh, obviously, we've seen new techniques being used. And some of those will be very valuable to other countries, having learned some lessons. Uh, some of the collaboration around SEPI uh, and the vaccine uh, initiatives uh, are not at the heart of the ARI, but actually we're seeing a lot of interest given the UK's leadership in that area internationally. And are there any 
previous shocks to the trade system that can provide some clues as to how to trade will recover post-COVID? Or is the shock from COVID completely unique? I think the shock from COVID is very unique, (laughs) Uh, but there are big shocks that trade has seen in the past. So if you look at the global financial crisis, uh, there were clearly uh, major shocks around the world in that area. Uh, But generally, we need to balance some of the evidence around health and wealth to make sure that the economy keeps, uh, keeps moving and take lessons both from history, but also from other countries. And will the... COVID crisis caused multinational companies to change, for example, their international supply chain models to increase resilience? One of the areas that DIT has put in place is something called Project Defend, Mm -hmm. which is largely looking at the resilience of supply chains. Uh, Many countries have either put in place new trade barriers or areas to optimise their local resilience. Uh, And we are doing similar things but with a view that uh, we still think open trading is, is the right way forward and we don't want to put in place new barriers. But local resilience within the UK is, is a necessity. We need to make sure we defend our own corner and some of the mechanisms trade has put in place with Project Defend are to help that. Mm. The ARIs also have questions on trade agreements. The government's recently secured a trade agreement with Japan and, as we all know, is negotiating a number of others, including one with the EU. Do we have the evidence to know what makes a good trade agreement and what doesn't make a good trade agreement? Trade agreements take different forms depending on where you are in the world and and the right time, but they tend to be long-term agreements. Uh, So as a result, we look for the best evidence that we can get to help us on a long-term basis. Uh, If we think about the recent agreement with Japan, uh, the third largest market in the world, it's the first agreement we've signed in 45 years as the UK. Uh, So actually, uh, we had to get the best evidence for that, but also have the willingness on both sides uh, that that it was a sensible thing to sign. One of the evidence points we can see is that we think it will lead towards a 15 billion uplift in trade between the UK and Japan. Um, And that's backed up by lots of sources of evidence for different sectors. Um, But as they say in trade, it takes two to tango and you need the the best evidence that fits uh, the aspirations on both sides. Uh, We'll do the same with other big agreements in the future with the USA, with Australia, with New Zealand and many other places. And can you learn from one and the evidence that you're using from one? Does it feed into another or are they very different markets and so you need to start again? A lot of the evidence does feed across, uh, but it also builds on what are the UK strengths. Yeah. So the UK strengths are a key evidence source uh, based on uh, what we want to export to many countries. Uh, the read across is often based on some of the, the terms and conditions in, a, in the chapters, as they're called in the trade agreements. There's also evidence of read across from the European agreements. So we need to establish continuity agreements with mm. some of the European international agreements. Uh, So it's not just new free trade agreements, it's some continuity agreements as well. Mm. Now, earlier, when you were setting out some of the evidence that was needed in the department, you mentioned levelling up, and obviously that's one of the government's current priorities uh, in terms of economic performance across different regions, different countries of the UK. How can we ensure that international trade doesn't just 
increase the wealth of already economically strong regions. So the ARIs pick out on levelling up, particularly by region, and uh, the four nations in particular need the best support they can get from the UK government in any new trade agreement. Um, what we already have had is international trade advisors who are based right across the UK, so feet on the street, if you like. Mm. And some of that evidence is therefore internal through those internal uh, international trade advisors. We also can see that uh, some areas of strengths might not be uniform for certain sectors. So look, taking the sector lens is as important as the levelling up agenda. Um, and, and if, for example, there are clusters that we can identify that are suitable for export or inward investment, we will identify those. Uh, and we've done a lot of that work already. Uh, certainly we would expect that the four nations would all benefit from uh, more trade agreements and uh, opening up of markets wherever we can. And are there particular regions in the UK where you can pick an example, say, of a region and, uh, and a sector or cluster that should have a larger international trade uh, presence than it, than it currently has, where maybe more activity could be done? Uh, there are lots of uh, regional examples, but if I was just to say that the UK economy is roughly 80% services, mm -hmm. and services can often be offered anywhere in the world at any time. So picking out some of the services economy uh, actually helps the levelling up agenda as well. And we can start to see strong financial services and cyber security in the Edinburgh area, for example. Uh, we can see strong service sectors um, in creative industries right across the UK, some in games, some in TV, some in film. Uh, we can see lots of professional services companies in all the big cities of the UK. Uh, so it's not just about financial services where you may orientate towards the City of London. It's the whole services economy which can be spread very evenly across many uh, geographies within the UK. And is there a difference when we were talking about uh, evidence of some of these things between goods and services, between understanding what makes a good agreement and how we take things forward, given that we're such a strong service economy? Uh, there is a lot of evidence. We could always look for more. Um, we've been counting goods and goods rather than services for hundreds of years uh, because we've been a trading nation for hundreds of years. And our traditional uh, Her Majesty's uh, Revenue and Customs have been the leaders in that area. Uh, but counting services is harder because sometimes the nature of classification is tougher. Uh, they're less visible. Sometimes they contribute towards invisible earnings. Mm. Um, so actually... Getting that evidence is, is a challenge in itself, um, but we think by being open about our areas of research interest, we can get the best evidence we need. One of the other things you mentioned early on in your remarks was export controls and national security. And clearly we want to combine exporting the great goods and services we have and yet protecting our own national security. How do we know how to make those choices? What, what types of evidence do we need to make those, uh, those quite difficult decisions? Well, as you can imagine, uh, the things that are restricted tend to either be uh, in relation to the defence industry or the security industry, and then some things which may have dual use, mm -hmm. part defence, part civilian. Uh, so there is a well-established procedure, a list, if you like, which is agreed between many nations, and we work to that list. Um, as emerging technologies arrive, let's say quantum or mm -hmm. let's say uh, some areas of cybersecurity, 
we may add to that list. Um, but having the evidence to know when is it out of the research community and into the market is, is part of the question we're facing. Um, so we'll add to the list by agreement, but generally we need to keep an eye on those new emerging technologies if we're to change our practices. Spotting services or intellectual property that could be leaked is a, is a harder challenge. Mm. Um, but the reality is that the work of export controls has gone on for, for a number of years and will continue and to adapt for new circumstances. And presumably you have, therefore, uh, agreements and understandings and links with UK universities and researchers who are working in some of these dual use or some of these control technologies. Yes, we do have links to universities. I think there's always room to do more, uh, particularly in areas of emerging tech. Sometimes the research community uh, want to do the research rather than the market aspects of that. So I think sometimes explaining if it's ready for market, it may need particular attention. Uh, but the same issue applies to when do you file for intellectual property. Mm. Um, clearly making sure the, re the research is not released prematurely is part of this story. Uh, so more of a dialogue, particularly around emerging technology, would be a good idea in that area. Taking on to a different area, another long-term goal of the UK is to decarbonise the economy. Do we have evidence on the links between global trade and carbon emissions? And to what extent can we make trade somehow good for the environment as opposed to environmental pollution? Well, I think trade is generally good for the environment already, but it could be made better and greener. Uh, so the UK government's emphasis on clean growth, whether it's uh, cleaner fuels for automotive, uh, whether it's uh, better energy uh, distribution with renewables in mind, uh, these all play in. When it comes to international trade, clearly we can't mandate um, what different countries should do in a trade agreement for clean growth. But frankly, we are encouraging clean growth initiatives, partly because it plays to UK strengths, partly because there'll be some new, new opportunities in that area. The fact that the UK is hosting the COP26 talks next year mm. is an indication of our commitment to uh, climate change and mitigation of climate change. And the UK has particular strengths in, in not just climate measurement, but also in environmental measurement and technologies that may minimise the risk of climate change. And how does the UK's own positioning for COP26 feed back through to departments like Department for International Trade? Uh, we established a climate change group within our department over a year ago, and that regularly meets to discuss cross-sector issues where trade can make a difference. Um, the appetite for addressing climate change differs around the world, but for, but for the leading G7 countries who we are talking to about future trade agreements, they all want to include that on their agenda. So I think the appetite is there. The question is what form it takes. The COP26 talks are, are organised really internationally, not just by the UK. We are the host with Italy, um, and as such, uh, you'll see more announcements during 2021 about the detail of that. Uh, I would expect we'll have a strong um, uh, exhibition activity alongside the policy making functions and that exhibition activity DIT will be strongly involved with to show some of the best solutions in, in mitigating climate change that are available. Uh, big data and measurement, uh, analytics, visualisation, mm. that should all be part of it. One of the things that sometimes appears in the press, perhaps correctly, perhaps not, is the suggestion that we don't emit so much pollution in the UK, but we get get round that 
by effectively importing goods that are made in other countries where they have a greater amount of environmental pollution in the way that they manufacture things. Is that a genuine problem and how does that feed into what we're trying to do for trade and the environment? I'm not sure it's a genuine problem. I think uh, people will think about local resilience for some things like mm. food, uh, like health. Um, packaging obviously has been more prominent in the media recently and you know, do we have excessive use of packaging. But I think some of the issues around the environment, I think not all countries have the same approach to it. So we need to, I think, discuss, raise understanding and see what we can do. I think that's why things like exhibitions or um, even virtual conferences showing solutions mm. is, is a good part of the argument. Uh, but we can't force fit things into trade agreements that don't easily fit. We mm. need to have a better understanding between two countries first. I guess in the UK, at least, we've been looking to cost in the environment in, in a more general way in, into the cost of business. But if other countries aren't doing that and that's not done in trade, that does make the equation of uh, trade a bit more complicated. I think when I speak to young people, wherever they are, I think they're more and more aware of the environment because it's mm. their future rather than my future. Mm. Um, so I think actually the attitudes are changing gradually, but they're not changing at the same pace everywhere. Mm. Right, fair enough. So obviously there are many, many things on the agenda as Chief Scientific Advisor. So just what are your key priorities over the next sort of 12 to 18 months? Well, in the immediate term, we've recently set up some trade advisory groups for key sectors. And that's to make sure that some of the trade agreements we put in place are relevant to those sectors. They're going to bring benefit. Uh, so that, that includes whether it's agriculture, uh, whether it's telecoms and technology, <coughs> other areas of investment. So those trade advisory groups are blessed with some really strong heavyweight uh, industrial players to, to give us advice. Um, beyond that, I think my desire is to see that we, uh, we use these ARIs, areas of research interest, to help ensure that we've got more data in the department to help guide us in terms of the future direction for exports, i.e. priorities and resources, or uh, perhaps inward investment in some cases. With the current COVID crisis being international, we need to be very careful that we both retain existing investment and attract new investment. Uh, we need to support areas like the Bayes R&D roadmap, particularly to make sure we've got a longer term roadmap <coughs> that helps to develop growth opportunities for the future, as well as invent and find new things. Mm. Um, I'm very keen on the 2.4% metric in the industrial strategy, and I look at that all the time because um, we need to get the right mixture of government and business to work together in that area. I'm also keen to make sure we look at emerging technologies, whether it's quantum or new areas such as cybersecurity, maybe artificial intelligence, making sure that we can make those, make those sustainable from a UK export point of view and indeed international collaboration. And lastly, I think um, some areas of international collaboration on research will get particular attention. I'm watching closely the negotiations with the EU on access to Horizon 2020 and Horizon Europe. I also want to make sure that we have good global collaboration to support some of the other international trade agreements. We've had long-standing research collaboration between the UK and the USA. We need to put that more in the spotlight, I think, mm. but also with other major countries such as Japan, maybe India and so on. Well, it's an exciting time and let's see how all that pans out. Uh, Dr Mike Schott, thank you very much. Thank you.
You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Dr. Michael Short, Chief Scientific Advisor from the Department for International Trade. All of our podcasts and details of all of our events and our blogs can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Next week, we'll be discussing R&D intensity in different countries and regions of the UK, and my guest will be Professor Richard Jones from the University of Manchester.